0: Celebrating Apollo with a woman who helped get the astronauts home, this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome, I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. Poppy Northcutt was the only female engineer working in Apollo mission control from Apollo 8 through Apollo 13. Wait till you hear my extended conversation with her. It's coming right after we hear from a couple of moonwalkers. And later, Casey Dreyer will tell you how you can join the celebration and learn more about those amazing missions at planetary.org. Bruce Betts has another light sail update for us as we near the time when the little CubeSat will spread its wings. We'll start our 50th anniversary party with a little shindig thrown on Saturday, July 13th, at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library in California.
1: The one, the only, Buzz Aldrin right here. Thank you.
0: While there were other astronauts honored that evening, there's no question that Buzz Aldrin, the Apollo 11 lunar module pilot and moonwalker, was the guest of honor.
1: I could give you a number of uh, examples where I ended up being one of the most fortunate people because it didn't look like it was going to come my way, being an astronaut.
0: Charlie Duke was on stage with Buzz. He was the lunar module pilot for Apollo 16 in 1972 and became the 10th of only 12 humans so far who have left footprints on another world.
1: I stepped onto the moon and it was, uh, uh, Like a little kid at Christmas and birthday, all rolled into one, I was so excited. I'm on the moon, I'm on the moon. And uh, it was uh, wonder and awe and excitement and adventure. And uh, his Buzz made a perfect description, magnificent desolation.
0: Buzz Aldrin has spent the last half-century pushing for advances in human spaceflight, and especially for putting boots on Mars. You can hear his many planetary radio appearances at planetary.org radio. Use the special PlanRad search engine there to find the episodes. It was fitting that this pioneer once again expressed his impatience in a celebration of the Apollo 50th anniversary.
1: Fifty years ago, the Saturn V took the command module, the lunar module, three of us to the moon. We landed, explored, got back up again, rendezvoused, came back. That's 50 years of non-progress. I think we all ought to be a little ashamed that we can't do better than that.
0: We thank Buzz Aldrin Ventures for those sound clips. The Apollo 11 50th Anniversary Gala benefited Buzz's Human Spaceflight Institute. It took a team of 400,000 men and women to get Buzz, Neil Armstrong, and Michael Collins to the moon, and the vast majority of those team members were men. Their rarity alone made the women stand out, but I've learned that most of them would have been standouts based purely on their abilities, their contributions, and their drive. Poppy Northcott is a great example. Poppy was the only woman engineer who worked in Apollo mission control at Houston's Johnson Space Center. She put in countless hours on the navigation program that got the Apollo astronauts into orbit around the moon and brought them safely home. And she was there in a different room but on the communications network for missions including Apollo 8, 11, and 13. As you'll hear, she went on to yet another impressive career of service, but it was her work on the space program that brought her to Los Angeles for the IMAX premiere of the spectacular documentary called, simply, Apollo 11. I've now seen it twice, and it was just as thrilling the second time. See it, and see it on as big a screen as you can. I promise you won't be sorry. It was shortly after the screening that Poppy and I sat down to talk about her legacy, with a surprise guest standing by for a shout-out at the end of our conversation. Poppy, I cannot tell you what a pleasure it is, and what an honor it is to welcome you to Planetary Radio, especially after seeing that that spectacular film. Uh, Welcome.
2: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: You had, I don't know how many hundreds of people here in the IMAX Theater, at the California Science Center, which, by the way, we are in right now. It's more or less deserted because it's after hours here. A place where people come to get excited about science, which apparently was, was true of you very early on in your life as well.
2: It was. I became excited about it once I started working in the space program especially.
0: Did you, <laughs> this is a funny way to start maybe,
2: but did you ever
0: get to see an Apollo launch? Because yes.
2: You did. Which one did you see? I saw 13. 13. Oh, my gosh. Which was star-crossed. Uh-huh. I uh, flew out on my own dollar to see the launch at the Cape. I got down there, and right after I got down there, they announced that they might have to delay or even scrub the mission because one of the astronauts had the measles.
0: Oh, I remember that, and there was a substitution.
2: And there was a substitution, but at first we didn't know, is there going to be a substitution or not? And I was very disconcerted because I was thinking, I spent all this money to come down here and I'm not (laughs) going to do a launch. Or it may be delayed and I can't, I had a non-refundable ticket. I had to get back. So I was really on pins and needles. But then, of course, they did launch. And I flew back right after the launch.
0: Because you had to go to work.
2: I had to go to work, exactly. But I had time to see the launch because I didn't go to work until they were about eight hours, nine hours out from the moon.
0: Hmm. And you said moments ago when we were in that big IMAX theater that your job was limited to when the Apollo missions were within the realm of the moon, right? Exactly. Within the moon's gravity well.
2: Very specialized occupation.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And very important. I was going to bring up Apollo 13 a lot later, but since it's come up, since you brought it up, You were involved with helping to get those guys home.
2: You wanted to come home from the moon? (laughs) I was involved.
0: So uh, things were not going as planned. Do you want to review that for anybody out there? The few people who listen to this show regularly who don't know what happened on the way to the moon?
2: They had an explosion (laughs) on the way to the moon. They were still, I can't remember how far out they were. But it was after translunar injection, but well before they got to the moon. And there was a big bang. Nobody knew quite what exactly had happened. Actually, nobody really knew what had happened until reentry on that mission where they got us. you know, you do separation before you reenter and they got to yeah. look at what the, was back there.
0: They got to look at the service module <laughs> when they separated from reentry. Which I'm
2: sure yeah. had to be a shock whenever yeah. they saw it. But uh, the main spacecraft engine was not usable. That was the first mission that was supposed to be a non-free return mission. And what that means is that the trajectory that they were on to go around the moon, ordinarily, on previous missions, if they had not gone into lunar orbit, they still would have been on a flight path to return to the Earth. That's called a free return. That one, they were going to go a little higher inclination, I think it was. So they weren't on a free return. So the the first order of business was to put them on a free return. So at least we knew they were going to come back to the earth eventually. In many ways, uh, I mean, people think that because I worked on the abort program, the return to earth program, that must have been a particularly challenging mission for me. Actually, it was not. It was challenging in the sense that it was an emergency situation and and we were dealing with a lot of unknowns, but we designed that program. That was exactly what it was designed for. Mm. That was the first mission where it was actually used for what it was designed for. It was called initially the Abort Program for sort of political reasons. They didn't like to emphasize the danger. Uh, it was renamed the Returned Earth Program, a little more generic, <laughs> a little more user friendly but it was really designed for aborts and uh, we had simulated using the descent propulsion system to oh, you return had yes the, the
0: engine on the lunar module we had
2: we had simulated that we had simulated using the ascent propulsion system we had simulated using the two of them together we had simulated all of that kind of stuff The people that had the most challenging things to do were the people dealing with environmental problems because there were a lot of those.
0: These were the people we saw taking bits and pieces and trying to fit them together to, uh, quite literally, to figure out how to keep the astronauts alive.
2: They were solving a problem in real time. I mean, actually making it up as they went along. We did not have to make it up as we went along. Mm. As I said, this was what we designed our program to do.
0: Nevertheless... It was so critical, not just on Apollo 13, but for all of the Apollo missions, beginning with Apollo 8, which you also worked on. And nobody had ever done that before. I mean, as they say in Star Trek, going where no one has ever gone, you had to get them back to Earth. Somebody asked you a question. There was must have been an engineer in the audience tonight who said he works with 15 uh, decimal places, 16 decimal places of, of precision. And he asked how many you worked with. Thirty-two. and this is
2: 50 years ago
0: yeah mind-boggling you were prepared to do this because you started before you became a mission control specialist you were one of these people called a computress yes did you know i work for the planetary society my boss is bill nye the science guy yes he likes to talk about his mother who was a computer during world war ii you were in the same line of business Basically, is serving as human computers because you were great with what? Slide rules?
2: Well, we didn't use slide rules. We had uh, big monster desktop calculators, and they were monsters. It's those I mechanical hated it. ones that they go ka-chung, 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 oh, ka-chung. It was painful. <laughs> uh, I had one sitting right by me when I first started to work. It was huge. I don't know how much it weighed. At least 40 pounds. I wouldn't be surprised if it was 60 or 70. Maybe 30 inches square, and then maybe 12, 14 inches tall. And it was mechanical. So if you were doing a square root, it just clattered forever. It was so noisy. But the incredible thing was that after I'd been there only a few months, really, maybe eight months, it was replaced. By an electronic calculator, which was just as big, okay? (laughs) It was still big, but it made no noise, and it was fast. It was a miracle. And then not too long after that, the operations manager in Houston Operations walked through showing his new little trophy. It was a brick in his hand. From either I can't remember if it was Hewlett-Packard or Texas Instruments, but it was a handheld calculator. Now they were too expensive for us to have them. OK? <laughs> he was the only one who had it, but it was telling what the future was.:
0: I'm assuming that this wasn't much more powerful than the ones you can get for three dollars now at 711.
2: Oh, absolutely.: <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, you're walking around with more computer power in your phone probably than they had in the real-time computer complex. I wouldn't be surprised.
0: I'm going to come back to the missions specifically, but but to talk about your work. When you made that jump from computress to engineer, it it was a pretty big promotion, wasn't it? It it, was a
2: huge promotion, and it was delayed. Uh, I was supposed to be—I had been promised, I'd been told after I'd been there six months that— The operations manager wanted to promote me and that he was expecting to do that at the end of the next six months but the promotion didn't come and then it finally came like two or three months later and when i went in to get a promotion the main thing that he did was apologize to me and what he was apologizing about was that because the salary jump was so high he had to fight with corporate headquarters he had been fighting with corporate headquarters to get the promotion, to get me to the bottom of the pay grade. And he was upset that he was not able to get me higher because he thought I deserved to be higher. But he had had to fight all that time just to get me to the bottom of the pay grade. And he told me that it would have been easier to have fired me and rehired me. (laughs) Because Uh he had the singular power to do that. But to do this kind of a promotion, he had to go through all sorts of gyrations. My impression
0: is that you were lucky to have this guy as a boss.
2: I was fantastically
0: lucky. Yeah. Because I'm, I'm going to guess that on average, there weren't a lot of men who were that open-minded at the time. In fact, I've heard you describe this as a sea of sexism.
2: Yes, it was a sea of sexism. And not just for me. I mean, I'm, it, it, the whole planet was a sea of sexism at yeah. the time.
0: Did it disturb you at the time, or was it just the way things were? And it
2: was gravity. It was like gravity. How many times do you think about gravity? Hmm. And it's affecting your body 24-7, okay? Every particle of your being, but you don't notice it. That was the world in which women lived at that time. You you know, you notice gravity whenever you slip on the banana peel or you decide to climb on the roof and fly. Or an suddenly, apple falls on your head. Suddenly, yeah, okay? You yeah. go, oh, okay. And it was sort of the same for me. I mean, I began to really perceive the sexism when I realized about the, the barrier, about the pay thing, that I could not be paid for more than nine hours a day, 54 hours a week because of wage hour laws. And that just infuriated me. Women could work three or four jobs. It's not that women couldn't work more than that. They just couldn't work for the same employer and get overtime. I recognized the significance of that immediately. In two different ways. The most vicious part of that really wasn't even the pay discrimination that was involved. What it was was that if women were working on something like I was working on, how will you ever be accepted as a member of the team if you're not functioning like the rest of the team members? If they're working 70 hours a week and you're leaving after 54 hours. To me, that was the most invidious part was that it restricted your opportunities Hmm. and and most women would leave i mean they would think i'm not getting paid and their boss would say hey you're not getting paid you go home my boss told me go home and i just ignored him i stayed
0: (laughs) and you stayed for some very long days right during the missions especially
2: well but i was promoted by by the time of missions
0: Hmm. You were asked questions by reporters. You had things happen to you that would be, I, at least I was going to say that would be unthinkable today. They should be unthinkable they today. They should. Like you were saying, it was gravity. It was the way of the universe at that point.
2: It was. Uh, the sexism from the media was really far more obvious than the sexism in the workforce by the coworkers. And, and most of the guys were fine, okay? Mm. The, you know, we were working on a very mission-focused thing. You know, everybody really had their mind on the big prize, which was getting a person to the moon and getting them home safely.
0: I was watching the film again today, this special IMAX version. Some of these names of people that were there in mission control are now legends. You, I think, are rapidly becoming one of those now. (laughs) But as I was looking at the film on the screen, and I was blown away the first time, and I was Blown away again this time. And I've met maybe two or three of those people who show up in the film. And I thought of you because I'm assuming that you were familiar with a lot of those faces that we were seeing on screen in Mission Control. I mean, what does it feel like to watch, to relive that, knowing that you were there in another room, but very much a part of that team?
2: Well, it feels a little strange. Uh... And not entirely comfortable to watch these documentaries. And part of that is because I was very focused on missions. I'm an expert at compartmentalization
1: Hmm.
2: and uh, focusing on what I'm doing. That's what you really had to do when you're over there. You have to pay attention to what you're doing. You don't worry about what other people are doing. Uh, They have to take care of their job. You have to take care of yours. You can't be distracted. I think also probably that atmosphere of sexism probably had something to do with it as well, that being a woman, I thought it was very important that I not be emotional and that I not uh, demonstrate any feeling of pressure. Compartmentalizing all of that. At the time, I was not nervous. I was cool as a cucumber, whether we were talking 11, any of those missions, 13, whatever. But watching these things on uh, the big screen, I can't compartmentalize anymore. I'm not in there anymore. So I start feeling anxiety when I watch some of it. That stuff that I zoned out, I can't zone out anymore. Mm-hmm. I've never been able to watch the movie Apollo 13, for example. <laughs> I get about 10 minutes into it and it, um, I start feeling anxious.
0: Well, I imagine that would be a nice compliment to Ron Howard and all the other people who made that film. But um, it's so interesting. I had kind of the same experience because, I mean, we all know how these missions ended up. And yet you get so caught up in the film and this feeling that, my God, what they are accomplishing and the dangers that they're facing. But you, you, that was not in your mind when you were doing your job, making sure they did get back home.
2: No, you have clear line. I mean, you have lines, you're totally focused. But yes, I was very aware of the danger. I mean, there's, you know, there's gallows humor in the scientific world, technical world. I very well remember when I started working on the return to Earth, we would often have printouts that came back where uh, they missed the reentry corridor. or and, you know, the bottom of the printout said R.I.P., R.I.P., R.I.P. R.I.P.? Rest in peace. Yeah. Rest in peace. I mean, that's, you know, I saw many a printout whenever I started working where that was, you know, that was the result of our calculation. We had not targeted adequately. So I was always very aware that space travel was an inherently dangerous occupation. A tiny error could result in a really bad consequence.
0: Was your program responsible for making sure not only that they got back to Earth, but that they hit the atmosphere at just the right angle because that was such a critical thing?
2: We did not do reentry. Okay, someone else came up with those, but that was a black box, and we had to hit the middle of the corridor. And, you know, that's what I'm talking about. If we, you know, when we were first working, we would not hit the hit the corridor, and, you know, they would burn up would, if if you had been flying a mission, they would have burned up. Mm-hmm. You know, the arrows when we started were just huge, and we had to bring those arrows down tremendously so that we could really operate with great precision.
0: You gave a great example of that. The landing or, or splashdown ellipse when you got started was how big?
2: Bigger than the Atlantic Ocean.
0: <laughs> so fortunately, they came down in the Pacific.
2: Well, but they didn't need to. I mean, by the time the the missions were flying, I mean, we could practically land on the deck of the ship. Uh, But, uh, But when we started, that's how big the errors were.
0: Talk about what it felt like. You had to feel some joy and excitement and release. Each of those times, they made it back safely, partly because of your work.
2: Absolutely. But it was also great trepidation. I mean, in the sense that you never felt You never felt like a mission was success. You never celebrated. I didn't anyway. I mean, I didn't celebrate whenever they walked around the moon. I was pleased, but I did not celebrate because it's not over till it's over. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter how great. It doesn't matter if everything had gone perfectly. If they don't come off that recovery ship, you know, if they don't get recovered, it's a failure. What was the relief
0: like when Apollo 8 made it back safely? Because that was the first
2: that was the first and, I think, the most difficult mission. I mean, a, Apollo 13 was the most difficult in the sense that we had an emergency on board. But if you were to look at what was on the drawing board to be achieved when you started out at launch, okay, and compared the various missions, the challenges that were present on Flying 8 were definitely the greatest much of the hardware had not been used, certainly not been used in a flight to the moon of that kind of length and and technical difficulty. All that software had never been used. The schedule had been accelerated. Two months was taken away Uh, on the delivery of our program. I was rereading something I found in my locker, um, my storage unit, which really uh, sort of hit me in the face. It reminded me of why I was so bloody tired during Apollo 8. We had to compress all of that testing as it went into the real-time computer program because they took away our test time. Uh, We were making bug changes. We were making bug fixes up until the last week before launch, which was against the rules. The system was supposed to be frozen at least two weeks before launch. Then it... It had the numbers of how many trans-Earth injections we verified during the flight, and it was over 400. Wow. And they only did 10 orbits, Mm -hmm. but we verified 400.
0: Fantastic. Was it also a tough moment for you? I don't know how much you were involved with this. When Apollo 8 went behind the moon and had to... fire the engine and go into orbit
2: that that particular maneuver the major maneuvers are all done behind the moon when you're you have no signal and that first loss of signal was definitely a very scary thing because uh they're going to do this big maneuver that's never been done before you don't know until they come out the other side did it work OK, did they overburn? Did they underburn? If they did, you won't have much time to fix it. You have to get tracking on them because you don't know where they are exactly. You may have a really desperate situation if the mm. maneuver went badly. So, yeah. And then they were late coming out. So that made it even worse. <laughs> did you get to meet
0: any of the astronauts, the sure. Apollo astronauts? I've
2: met some of them. Yeah, I, You know, I got a Snoopy, Silver Snoopy Award from Neil Armstrong that uh, if you worked in the program that was that was the one you wanted
0: <laughs> and not the only award that you got uh, for your No work but that, that
2: was the one you wanted because that was for flight safety.
0: Yeah, yeah. And
2: it was awarded by the astronauts. What about
0: the other leaders I was starting to talk about this earlier. The other leaders who made so much of this possible, Gene Kranz and Chris Kraft, sure. and those guys.
2: Sure. I'm I. I didn't know Chris Kraft, but I'm I'm I met Kranz and you know the other flight directors that were over there. But I didn't deal with them primarily. I dealt with the retrofire officers, because we were there to support them.
0: You were in it uh, through what Apollo thirteen, right?
2: Yeah, and but our program was used on all of the Apollo programs. Mm.
0: But you went on to do other things. Yes, to get a completely different career for yourself.
2: I did. A lot of things were going on at the time. They stopped really doing lunar stuff, and it was clear they weren't going to do Mars stuff. Mm -hmm. And I had already started working. The task I worked on had already started doing some preliminary advanced lunar missions as well as some very preliminary Mars work. I wasn't that enthusiastic about just dealing with Earth orbital stuff. That didn't really seem very challenging to me. So uh, I got loaned to the city of Houston, to the mayor's office as the women's advocate, and worked on improving the status of women in the city of Houston. I became a lot more aware of the discrimination against women. I was pretty aware of it to start with, but I became increasingly aware. And I used to go to lunch with a federal judge, and I would argue with him and tell him what I thought he had done wrong, and he kept telling me, you needed to go, you know, Poppy, you need to go to law school and stop practicing law without a license. And one day I said, you know, Woody, I'm going to do that. And you did. I and did.
0: Now, fifth, I mean, you were a prosecutor. <laughs> mm-hmm. you Well, you still take some cases, don't I do. you? And aren't you still very involved with, uh, with now, with the I National am. Organization for Women?
2: I am. I'm the state president of the National Organization for Women in Texas. And I work very hard at registering voters trying to get women involved in the political process.
0: So the end of your involvement with Apollo was certainly not the end of your activities that you could be proud of. But I I just wonder where that part of your legacy, the Apollo portion and the contributions that you made, how you feel about that?
2: Well, I feel very proud of it. I mean, I feel, you know, I did a lot of work. I'm very proud of the work. It was, and, and it's not so much that I take individual pride. I take pride in the team because that was a massive team effort. And I don't think very many people appreciate how big that team was and how critical everybody's role was. I mean, people like to talk about, well, oh, yeah, you, know, you did return to, to Earth and how critical that was. The truth of the matter is if, if you were the person responsible for designing a screw, okay, or just a little gizmo or assembling it, or inspecting it, or whatever you did with it. Even the tiniest little thing, if it didn't work right, that could cause a mission to be disastrous. All of those people had critical roles, as far as I was concerned. And what an immense achievement it was to have that kind of team, that 400,000 people were involved in that. And every one of them, as far as I'm concerned, was critical.
0: How do you feel about the progress that has been made uh, in STEM careers by, by women and, and other underrepresented groups in, in the 50 years since then?
2: Well, I'm, I'm pleased that there's been significant, you know, some significant progress, especially if you look at percentages, because percentage-wise, it was pretty close to zero in engineering. It's now up to about 8 or 9%, so it's improved significantly. Certainly the representation of women at NASA in, in uh, technical roles has improved. We've had flight directors for various missions. Women have been heavily involved in the unmanned missions as well. Very. So I'm, I'm very pleased with that progress. I think it could be better than it is, but I'm, I'm pleased that we've had some significant advances. At the same time, the representation of women in computer sciences has gone down. It was about 30% in the 60s, and it's dropped down to about 18% now. Mm. And that's very disappointing because computer science is a definitely a growth pattern, and women need to be involved in that.
0: You certainly have done your part to inspire not just women, but I would say women especially. I said we have a surprise guest. You surprised me when you did a little shout-out from <laughs> the stage uh, here at the California Science Center. Because I turned around to the person that you were pointing to or who waved her hand. And there was a regular, semi-regular guest on Planetary Radio, Dr. Rosalie Lopez. And she has stuck around with us. Rosalie, can you lean in there? I didn't bring another microphone for you. Yeah, I'm so glad that you could stick around.
3: Oh, me too.
0: Why was this so important to you, meeting Poppy?
3: Well, I was this little girl growing up in Brazil, totally fascinated by the Apollo program. I wanted to be an astronaut until I realized, probably at age eight, that I was Brazilian, female, and with terrible eyesight. So that wasn't going to work out. And uh, then I decided, well, I'm going to become a scientist, an astronomer, and uh, I'm going to work on the space program that way. But At the time, you didn't really see women working on the space program. I wasn't that discouraged, but um, um, I was really encouraged at the time of Apollo 13, when I saw in the newspaper a picture of a pretty young blonde woman, (laughs) and uh, uh, it was Poppy. And the newspaper had a little article about her, the only woman in Mission Control, and uh, uh, you know, and and it was kind of sexist. We talked about that, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, but uh, but that didn't didn't matter to me. Um, she was an incredible inspiration, and uh, I have wanted to meet her for. Forty nine years. (laughs) And uh, And it happened today. And it happened tonight, yes.
0: And now, Poppy, as you may have heard, or maybe you didn't because she might have been too modest, now she is one of the world's most renowned volcanologists and planetary scientists.
2: I know that. She holds the world's record for the discovery of volcanoes Mm. on Io or Io.
0: I can't imagine a better place to, to end this conversation other than to say thank you to both of you, uh, to you as well, Rosalie, but especially to you, Poppy, for taking this extra time this evening, but also for all of that work you did with that huge team to make Apollo something that we can still be so proud of today.
2: Well, it's a pleasure to be here, and I hope that it does inspire people today to understand that we can do great things. We just have to get together and put our minds to it.
0: Here, here. Thank you, Poppy. JPL planetary scientist and author Rosalie Lopez with Apollo, program mission control engineer turned attorney and women's rights activist Poppy Northcutt. As most of you know, Casey Dreyer is the chief advocate for the Planetary Society, advocating for uh, all things space exploration in our nation's capital, or this nation's capital, I should say, since a lot of you are outside of this nation. He is also a tremendous fan and aficionado of the history of space exploration, and uh, most recently, the Apollo program. And so, Casey, I think it's very appropriate that uh, you have been the person to pull together some great resources on the Planetary Society website.
4: Yeah. Happy 50th anniversary of Apollo. First off, as we record this, we're just days away from the successful first landing of humans on another world. That's astonishing to me. 50 years before Apollo happened, people were flying around in like biplanes, right? (laughs) 50 years later, they landed on the moon. And 50 years after that, we can't land on the moon anymore, <laughs> but
2: a lot of other <laughs> good
4: things have happened. Uh, but it's exciting. It's a, it's a really fun thing to look back on and uh, really enjoy this process of putting together, pulling together all this great content, new analysis. We have great new imagery, audio, all on our website. It's been a lot of fun.
0: Before we talk about some of those stories that are still coming in from lots of people, and I I think you're going to invite people to tell us their story of where they were and what they were up to when uh, Apollo was underway, if they're old enough to remember that. There are these uh, pieces about each one of the Apollo missions, right, by our uh, colleague Jason.
4: Yeah, uh, our colleague Jason Davis has been putting together these amazing mission summaries. And and when I say summary, I say, you know, the detailed timelines, really beautiful curated pictures, Uh, resources to the original, like press kits and documentation for every crewed Apollo mission on their 50th anniversary. So Apollo 7 through 11 right now, Uh, 12 will be coming out later this year, and we'll be kind of cycling through adding additional mission details throughout next year as well. And so these are just amazing mission pages. If you ever wanted to know what happened on a particular Apollo mission. Or even, I want to add, in my little neck of the woods, I, I put in the marginal cost of every single Apollo mission. Okay. So what did it cost to actually do Apollo 11 you can find it on our Apollo mission pages. It's, it's a lot of great content. there. It's
0: great, great work. Now, was I right? Are you still taking submissions of people's personal stories?
4: Absolutely. We might not get them all posted at the time, but a, f- a few weeks ago, we asked our members to submit their memories and thoughts and reflections on the Apollo 11 landing. And I want to emphasize, you don't have to be alive to remember your first experience with it. I wasn't alive. You know, my story is is sitting as a kid at the school library in elementary school, clicking on the button on the Encarta CD ROM on the old Macintosh oh so like LC2 <laughs> and seeing this tiny little postage stamp sized video of Neil Armstrong's first steps on the moon. And that was just amazing to me. And that's how I experienced it. But we we asked our membership and, and many, many, many hundreds of stories, way more than I anticipated, have been pouring into my Apollo story at planetary.org, just the email. Hashtag MyApolloStory, you can post it online. And we've been collecting those online, and you can load through them and see these just fascinating vignettes of slices of life. It's just amazing to me how many people shared this experience from around the world, literally around the world. We have people submit from India, from Argentina, from Spain, from various places other in, in Europe, of course, in the United States very different types of families and experiences and, and ways to engage with this, but they all shared this common sense of wonder and excitement that something new had happened. It, it was fascinating to read through them.
0: Just pick one of these uh, to read to us. Uh, give us an example of how affecting these are.
4: I won't read one directly, but I can just summarize a few of my favorites just because I, I want to leave these to for people to discover. But one of my charming kind of favorites was this guy. He was a young kid living in New York City. He had this eccentric neighbor who uh, bought a color TV, right? This is 1969. Not a lot of color TVs and was so excited to show off the color uh, on her TV shows to other people. She just cranked the color all the way up so everything <laughs> looked pink. And of course, they didn't broadcast the moon landing in color. It was in black and white, but she had the color tinted up all the way. So he remembers this pink moon was his experience with <laughs> Apollo 11 sitting in her apartment watching that. I, I just thought that was a really fun story. And, you know, there's everyone kind of engaged in a certain way. There's a lot of fun, interesting stories where people, they pulled off the side of the road, went to this bar and expected to see everyone watching the show, but they had the moon landing up on a TV, but everyone was more concerned with their, you know, earthly matters, just drinking and talking to each other. And he was the only one watching the moon landing in this crowded room of people. Lots of stories of kids staying up late. There's, there's one I particularly liked who begged his parents to wake him up, right? The moon walk wasn't until pretty late at night. He begged his parents to wake him up. They either didn't or couldn't wake him up for it. And he woke up the next day missing the experience. Uh. And he said he never forgave them and also never forgave Neil and Buzz for for waiting so long (laughs) to walk on the moon that he he was past his
0: bedtime. And yet they had moved up that first moonwalk. Oh, well, his his bad luck. You'll forgive me, I hope, if I tell my story, which I have told on this show before. Oh, I'd love to hear it. I uh, was a kid with my father's Super 8 movie camera. No sound, of course, and you can only shoot for, what, two and a half minutes at a time. I was parked in front of our black and white television and uh, had it pointed at the screen as uh, uh, Neil Armstrong came down the ladder and uh, said those immortal words, soon to be followed by Buzz Aldrin. And it was, of course, many years later, decades later, that I was able to share this story with Buzz Aldrin. Buzz, I, I happened to be at his at his home to record something with him, and uh, he disappeared for a couple of minutes. He came back with an 8 by 10 of the famous uh, portrait of Buzz in the spacesuit, standing on the surface of the moon. And you can see Neil taking his picture and the reflection on his visor. And Buzz had written on the photo... Here's what you were shooting with your dad's Super 8. <laughs>
4: <laughs> awesome. <laughs> That's a good one. I like that one. I'll have
0: to submit it. I haven't gotten around to
4: it yet. You should submit it. Yeah, we'll just uh, you can send us the email at Uh We're still collecting them. We'll post them up. But right now, I think we have something about 600 online. You can just wow. explore through on our website at, at planetary.org slash Apollo 50.
0: That's it. All of these resources available at planetary.org slash Apollo Fifty. Uh, just one more thing that we want to mention, Casey, and that is a very special little podcast mini series that uh, you've been uh, hosting.
4: Oh yeah, I'm I'm really excited about this. I'm I'm proud of the work that not not just me, but you and I did together, putting this uh, little mini series focused on Apollo. We're calling it a political history of Apollo. It's taking some of the interviews that we did for the space policy edition. All about why Apollo happened, uh, the domestic politics of Apollo, and then, of course, why we stopped going to the moon in the United States. And we, we wrap it together with kind of new interpretive essays by me at the beginning of every episode and really condensing it down into a special maybe five or six episode miniseries. The first two are up right now. If you just search for a political history of Apollo, it's on every major podcast provider, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, you name it. It's there. And it's a, I think it's a great great piece of work and a really fascinating addition to all of the stuff we're talking about with Apollo, the flags and footprints, the work that the people did, the bravery of the astronauts. It's important to remember the political aspect of why it happened and why it stopped. And particularly as we look forward to our next step of human exploration, what kind of conditions are the same and what are different now, this podcast will help walk you through that. And you know, you can start listening now and in, in advance of the anniversary and impress all of your friends on July 20th with all of your esoteric political knowledge of why Apollo happened as well. It's, it's one of the more fun benefits of that, let's say.
0: And don't feel bad if you uh, don't get the opportunity until after the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moonwalk, the landing and moonwalk that is uh, coming up on the 20th of July, uh, 2019. Casey, it is a great piece of work, and uh, I'm enjoying working on it. it's uh, these are wonderful conversations that give uh, terrific insights into uh, everything about Apollo and especially uh, the environment in which it came to be and in which it ended as well.
4: Yeah, that's a great way to put it. and and again, you can find that on all the major podcast directories and also at planetary.org slash Apollo fifty we link to it there.
0: Thank you, Casey. Happy fiftieth uh, anniversary and and happy uh, future of space exploration.
4: Yeah, I know. Now we've looked back for a while. Let's look ahead. Let's talk about the future next time.
0: I'll see you on the next uh, monthly edition of the Space Policy Edition as well. That's Casey Dreyer, Chief Advocate for the Planetary Society. And now it's time for What's Up with Bruce Betts. He's the Chief Scientist for the Planetary Society and the Program Manager for LightSail. Back with us again for another episode of Planetary Radio. Uh, Bruce, what are you going to be doing on the 50th anniversary, July 20th, which is uh, still four days away as we speak.
5: I'm going to celebrate by driving three and a half hours back to San Luis Obispo to uh, <laughs> get ready for light sail to sail deployment, which will occur in the, the day or few days after that. So it should be fun.
0: I'm hoping that I'll be making that drive, too. It takes me a little bit longer. I'm hoping that you're going to give me good reason to go up there. Are we? Is it looking good for deployment?
5: It is, but we're working out uh, some issues with the Attitude uh, Determination Control System, which I mentioned last week. And uh, we're getting fixes in place and things are looking better. Uh, whether we'll deploy no earlier than the 21st, but we'll, uh, we'll see. We, we don't want to deploy the big sale until we really have our Attitude Determination Control System fully understood.
0: Understandable. And uh, in the meantime, keep an eye on planetary.org because there are, well, how much of this can I hint at? There are already some great, great images, some beautiful shots of uh, your and my planet uh, and uh, more to come, I think.
5: Indeed. In fact, Jason should be putting up a blog in the next couple of days. So very shortly after people hear this or even before with a couple new images.
0: Our colleague, Jason Davis. All right, what else is up in the night
5: sky? We got Jupiter. Jupiter, 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 still dominating the evening sky in the south, looking like a super bright star, brighter than anything else out there. 25 times brighter than Antares, the bright but not nearly as bright star in Scorpius. And then uh, lower in the east, you'll find Saturn looking yellowish and not nearly as bright, but with pretty rings if you pull out a telescope. We move on to this week in space history, and I could not find anything interesting that happened this week in space history.
0: <laughs> Can I give you Nothing. a hint?
5: <laughs> Something happened?
0: You know, it was a minor blip in history. Uh, people left the planet and landed on another world, walked around for a while, came home.
5: Yeah. Well, apparently that's what happened this week in space history. <laughs> we move on to random space mix. Oh, that was celebratory. Well, I thought it appropriate for the 50th anniversary of whatever happened this week. But speaking of whatever happened this week, uh, I've talked before about, uh, and I find this very amusing, that a mineral that was first found on moon Moon, you know, the moon, was named, Arma- I can never pronounce it, Armalcolite, which is named after Aldrin, Armstrong, and uh, Collins. Not in that order. Armstrong, Aldrin, Collins. But what I haven't talked about is another mineral first found on the moon, Tranquilityite. Oh. which was named after uh, Mare Tranquillitatis, Sea of Tranquility, the landing place of Apollo 11. And its other claim to fame is uh, it's uh, it was the last mineral brought from the moon, which was first found on the moon, that was then found on Earth. So in Australia, where you find all sorts of weird stuff, I know, I went there. In 2011, <laughs> they found Tranquility i naturally occurring on the earth there you go there's your minerals that i can't pronounce uh, segment for planetary radio
0: have they found selenite yet because uh, it has interesting properties a lot like unobtainium
5: <laughs> i i can't discuss that on the air <laughs> <laughs> we go on to the trivia contest and i asked what are the four formal tracking station locations near and dear to my heart for light sail two how'd we do Pretty good
0: response on this. I'm surprised it wasn't an even bigger response because of the outstanding prize that uh, we are giving away. I hear that our friend Liam, the inventor of ISS, and now LightSail Above, uh, delivered it to the office so that uh, we'll be able to get it out to this week's winner. It is certainly one of the coolest gadgets I've ever seen in my life. You can check it out at issabove.com. Uh, It uh, basically tells you when the ISS, the International Space Station, is passing overhead, Uh, but it does much more than that. If you hook it up to a monitor, it uh, has all kinds of great stuff coming down from the ISS, other facts and figures, and uh, yeah, now a light sail. I think we have a couple of them at the office. Bill Nye has one at home. Uh, Very cool little device. So here is the winner of that very cool little device, Benjamin Middis. Guess where he's from?
5: Midland, Australia. You didn't give me a chance to
0: guess. (laughs) Well, you probably would have said the moon or something silly like that. Um, Who says we never get winners uh, down under? He says that the uh, four sites were Cal Poly, that's Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, to be specific, because there are two Cal Polys, Georgia Tech, Purdue University, and Kauai Community College, right? That is correct. Fantastic. Fantastic. Uh, Good on you, Benjamin. Congratulations. Uh, He says he cannot wait for a possible glimpse of LightSail 2 on July 15th. Well, probably not. From the Pilbara region of Outback, Australia, it should be on a clear 5 a.m. start to the day directly overhead. Well, guess what, Benjamin, from (laughs) pretty soon you'll have a neat device to tell you when those passes are going to take place and with any luck lightsail will have uh, spread its wings and it'll be much much easier to see
5: pretty impossible with just your eyes to see right now but uh if you have a advanced satellite tracking telescope and uh I don't want to know who you are if you do then you you can you might be able to see it
0: so bruce you thought there were only four uh tracking sites four organizations currently uh, tracking lightsail too Nope.
5: (laughs) Uh, That's why I specified four formal tracking station locations, Ah. because we do have amateurs who have been tracking it, and uh, we've used some of their data. But what do you have to tell me about, Matt?
0: I'm going to add to that list of informal organizations, because according to Mel Powell, it's also being tracked by one of the advanced Vulcan scout ships, but they won't admit it to us for a couple of hundred years. See, that I did not know. (laughs) Live long and sail on photons, Matt and Bruce. And then (laughs) we continue in this uh, tradition of virtually everybody who enters the contest uh, saying go, Light Sail, wishing us good luck with the project. One of those is our uh, poet laureate, Dave Fairchild. Cal Poly SLO and Georgia Tech, doing the math, are stations for tracking the signals of Light Sail's path, plus Kauai Community College and also a place at Purdue. So light sail 2, keep on smiling, because we're all looking at you. <laughs> and we got two more, two more poems this week in honor of our uh, little spacecraft. David Duthet from Charlestown, West Virginia, came up with this. If you want to know where solar sails go, someone at one of these schools ought to know, Georgia Tech or Purdue, Kauai Community 2, and Cal Poly, San Luis Obispo.
5: <laughs>
0: <laughs> missed it by
5: that much
0: <laughs> there's a blast in the past finally this one i think this is really uh delightful this is from gene lewin at fairchild air force base in uh, the state of washington through a vacuum it moves by light tracked on earth by four main sites safely released from a raptor's embrace into an orbit of equatorial trace. WM9XPA, it stated, in language that Sam Morris created. (laughs) Very nice. I thought so, too. Okay. Well, thank you, everybody. We really do appreciate the good wishes, and uh, keep them coming, because uh, until we get through deployment, and uh, Bruce will tell you until we can see if we can... Uh, raise that orbit by uh, solar sailing. Uh, uh, we, we've we still got a ways to go.
5: We do, but it's working. Got that healthy uh, spacecraft that talks to us all the time. All right, so back to Apollo 11. Before being named Eagle in Columbia, what were the Apollo 11 lunar module and command module named? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. So what name was used for them before they were named Eagle and Columbia?
0: You have until Wednesday, July 24th at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us the answer to this one. You might just win yourself a 200-point itelescope.net astronomy account on that worldwide network of uh, telescopes, remote-operated telescopes, all over this planet. Maybe somebody on the moon, too. Who knows? By the way, our uh, winner, Benjamin, uh, this week also got a 200-point account. We'll uh, We'll throw in a uh, Planetary Society kick asteroid, rubber asteroid. And here is something special in honor of Apollo. Uh, The author, who is also a curator and space historian at the Air and Space Museum, I have talked with her there, Teasel Muir Harmony, has written a book published by National Geographic called A History in 50 Objects, Apollo to the Moon. You basically can follow a lot of the Apollo program, through these cast-offs, these objects that contributed in one way or another to successfully uh, getting humans to the moon and back. It's a really fascinating book from Nat Geo and author Teasel Muir Harmony. That's it. Happy 50th to you, and uh, I hope to see you at deployment, Bruce.
5: Thank you, Matt. May your sails always be filled with light. Oh. Oh. And for everyone else, go out there, look up in the night sky, and think about what words you would have spoken if you were the first person to walk on the moon. Thank you, and good night.
0: I suspect for me it would have been something like, Hi, Mom! I made it!
5: <laughs> Always profound, my, my friend. Always profound.
0: <laughs> That's Bruce Batts. is the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, who joins us every week here for What's Up? Have you given us a review on Apple Podcasts or iTunes? I'd sure appreciate it, and it only takes a few moments. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by our moonwalking members. Mary Liz Bender is our associate producer. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which was arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. I'm Matt Kaplan. at Astro. Forty feet down, two and a half,
3: picking up some dust. 30 feet, two and a half down. Great shadow. Four forward. Four forward,
1: drifting to the right a little. Ready? Down a half. 30 seconds. Forward, just
5: Good. Okay. Contact light. Okay, engine stop. APA at a descent. Out of descent. control, both auto, descent. Engine command, override, off. Engine arm off. 413
1: is in. We copy you down, Eagle. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger, Tranquility. We copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot.